Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Thursday, January 19th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. The U.S. warms to helping Ukraine target Crimea. So this is from the New York Times. They reported this on Wednesday that the U.S. is warming to the idea of helping Ukraine strike Crimea, something that the Biden administration has previously avoided due to the risk of provoking a major response from Russian President Vladimir Putin. So again, this is following the pattern of escalation after escalation, them them doing things that they previously ruled out because they thought it would be too provocative. And now this, this is just such a huge risk. So this report, it cited unnamed U.S. officials. It said that after months of discussions with Ukrainian officials, the administration is now starting to concede that Kiev may need the power to strike the Russian sanctuary, even if such a move increases the risk of escalation. President Biden is still holding off on sending the longer-range missiles that could hit targets in Crimea, Uh, and Ukraine has been asking for them for a while, but the U.S. is discussing with Ukrainian officials how to attack the land bridge to Crimea that Russia has secured for itself. So how Russia has captured territory in, you know, southeastern Ukraine, and they can you know, have what they call a land bridge from uh, Russia to Crimea. And and they've been discussing how to attack this area using U.S.-provided weapons, such as the HIMARS rocket systems and the Bradley fighting vehicles, which the U.S. just sent. So they're saying that they could use these. You know, technically, they're a troop carrier, but they have a pretty big gun and they're armored vehicles, so they can definitely go on the offensive. Uh, The U.S., pledged these Bradleys for the first time in an over $3 billion weapons package that was announced earlier this month. Ukraine's getting 50 of these vehicles. Germany and France said that they're sending similar vehicles, so they have a lot of these uh, armored vehicles heading their way, Ukraine. And these U.S. officials are saying that the Bradleys could help Ukraine go on the offensive and that the HIMARS could be used to hit Russian supply lines coming out of Crimea from Ukraine's line in Kherson. A senior U.S. official told the Times that U.S. and Ukrainian officials are set to meet in Germany this week to war game out a potential offensive against Russia in southern Ukraine. So they're going to meet. I mean, you know, it's hard to call this anything other than just a U.S. war. I mean, it seems like proxy war doesn't really explain it anymore. I mean, the U.S. is directly involved in everything besides the actual fighting on the ground. Um, and they did this. You know, they war-gamed out uh, Ukraine's counteroffensives uh, that they previously launched as well. But this report, these U.S. officials acknowledge that even with additional military aid, the Biden administration does not think Ukraine can actually take Crimea from Russia. So their thinking is that Crimea needs to be under threat to give Ukraine leverage for future negotiations. Even though the risk of escalation is extremely high, U.S. officials said there's been what they're calling a dampening of fears that targeting Crimea would drive Putin to use a tactical nuclear weapon. 
So, I mean, the this lack of concern about Putin resorting to nukes, it appears to be based only on the fact that up to this point, he hasn't used them. This reflects a December report from the Times of London that said the Pentagon was tacitly backing Ukrainian attacks inside Russia because Putin, and again, you know, describing why they were backing these Ukrainian attacks inside Russian territory. And this wasn't Crimea. This is deep inside Russia. Um, They said it's basically because Putin hasn't responded to earlier attacks by using a tactical nuke or attacking NATO territory. It just seems like insane logic to me. And this New York Times report quoted uh, a woman named Dara Massacott. I might have said her name wrong, but she's a researcher from the RAND Corporation. And she, they quoted her. She said, quote, Crimea has already been hit many times without a massive escalation from the Kremlin, end quote. That's not true. That's simply a false statement. Russia started bombing Ukraine's energy infrastructure after the bombing, the truck bombing of the Kerch Bridge that connects Crimea to the Russian mainland. And, and this is a bridge, you know, over water, not a land bridge. But uh, that happened in October. And Russia responded, you know, wide scale attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure. And it's become a regular thing. And a lot of times you would see maybe like a drone attack in Crimea or attacks in Russia. And then the next day, Russia would, you know, pound Ukrainian energy infrastructure. Um, And millions of Ukrainians are struggling to power and heat their homes. So that was a huge escalation. Uh, So this woman is wrong or she just doesn't care. (laughs) You know, that might be their line of thinking, too, that. You know, they haven't attacked us or they haven't used the nuke, so who cares? Ukrainians are dying and suffering. It doesn't affect us. But U.S. officials admit in this New York Times piece that they don't know how Putin would respond to the U.S. supporting Ukrainian attacks on Crimea. So they're just willing to take this huge risk, it appears. And Putin has previously warned that he could use nuclear weapons to protect Russia's territorial integrity. And Russia's military doctrine allows for the use of nuclear weapons if the country faces an existential threat. So they don't know um, what's going to happen here. And it looks like, sounds like they're going to go ahead and and support something like this. But this is a totally other conversation. But who knows if Ukraine can even really support an offensive in the south there while they're fighting, you know, all the heavy fighting in the east. But I don't know. I'm not sure uh, what their capabilities are. Anyway, so that's another huge escalation. And the next article here, this is from Kyle Anzalone over at the Libertarian Institute. Hundreds of foreign fighters killed in Ukraine, thousands still in combat. So this is from the Washington Post, and they they had this report on you know the, the foreign legion or whatever exactly they call it in Ukraine. So thousands of people from around the world have answered Kiev's call and are fighting in Ukraine. In the nearly 11th month long war, over 100 foreign nationals have died fighting for Ukraine and over 1,000 have been wounded. I would guess, I would think it was it would be more than that. Um, anyway, uh, the Post conducted a series of interviews with fingers, with fighters, sorry, in an attempt to determine their motivations. The outlet reported that many seemed more interested in posing for Instagram then committing to the drudgery of trench warfare. Others seemed too eager to live out fantasies from the Call of Duty video game. The report continued, and some have faced more serious allegations of theft or sexual assault or were found to be fleeing criminal cases at home. So it seems like some of these people are trying to escape from something from home. 
In the initial months of the war, Kiev reported tens of thousands had signed up to fight with Ukrainian forces. However, the Post notes that many fighters were deterred early on. The realities of the war unnerved many initial volunteers. The outlet said the Post, citing unnamed analysts and academics, uh, assesses that there are between 1,000 and 3,000 foreign fighters currently in Ukraine. Again, I th- I would think it was more. I thought it was more than that. Um, maybe you know mercenaries are are, are different. Um, so they quoted a researcher who believes that 100 of the foreign fighters have been killed and over a thousand have been wounded. I think I said that already. Um, but yeah, so it's interesting. And I know I've seen other reports of you know U.S. veterans, veterans of American wars in the Middle East going over there. And just being totally overwhelmed because it's a completely different type of war than what they've they were fighting than you know fighting counterinsurgencies in, in the Middle East you know like this heavy artillery battle trench warfare something that they never experienced before. Uh, all right, the next article here. Um, this is just from AP. Uh, Ukraine helicopter crash killed Ukraine's interior minister. I just thought. You know, people should be aware of this if they haven't heard about it. So a helicopter carrying Ukraine's interior minister crashed into a kindergarten in a foggy residential suburb of Kiev on Wednesday, killing him and about a dozen other people, including a child on the ground, authorities said. Um, So the the interior, interior minister, he oversaw the country's police and emergency services, and he's the most senior Ukrainian official that's been killed since Russia invaded. And it looks like um, this was an accident. Uh, it doesn't seem like it was shot down or anything. Um, that's what they've concluded, at least. So that's what the Ukrainian authorities are saying. Um, all right. The next article here. Zelensky, the Ukrainian president at Davos, he tells his Western backers to speed up arms deliveries. So Zelensky delivered a video address to the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. And he said that, you know, the the NATO countries need to pick up the speed of their decisions on arms deliveries. And he's really making a reference there to Germany's hesitancy to send heavy tanks to the country. He said, quote, the list of calls for decisive, efficient joint actions needs to be expanded with one more. The call for speed, the speed of decision making, end quote. So he also apparently it, it seemed like he was crit- criticizing the West, the, the whole West's you know initial reaction to the war. He said Russia needed less than one second to start the war, and that the world needed days to react with its first sanctions. The Ukrainian leader he said that the supply of air defense systems must outpace Russia's you know next missile attack, and the supply of Western tanks must outpace another invasion of Russian tanks. Um, and we, there's a lot of tank drama going on. We've been talking a lot about it and I have another story about it, so I don't want to get too much into it. Um, but, but his speech came after the British said they're going to send tanks, but really the big decision I think is going to be made this Friday or, or maybe earlier as NATO defense ministers are meeting in Brussels on Thursday, there's going to be a decision I think about possibly sending these German made tanks, but it looks like that's not guaranteed. Um, but you know, Zelensky's speech, again, it kind of repeats this pattern that, you know, even though he's entirely reliant on the U.S. and its allies for his war effort, Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials, they're not afraid to criticize their Western 
backers. Uh, Dmitro Kuleba, he's the Ukrainian foreign minister. He said earlier this month that no one has done enough to support Ukraine. And in his address to the World Economic Forum, Zelensky accused some Western countries of taking for granted the values that Ukraine is fighting for. He said, quote, we routinely defend values which some of the allies take for granted as a fact of life, end quote. Um, so, you know, think of that what you will. <laughs> but, you know, we always hear this is a battle for democracy and such, you know, in the Western media. And that's how, of course, the Biden administration portrays it. You have to remember Zelensky, you know, banned the biggest opposition party in Ukraine, and he's used his uh, martial law to consolidate power. Um, all right, let's see. Uh, I'm going to take this moment to mention once again that it's our fundraiser at antiwar.com. And right now we have matching funds. A few of our generous donors have pledged $25,000 for our fundraiser, but we need to match that amount in individual donations. And that's where you come in. We've been working tirelessly to provide our readers with coverage of the war in Ukraine from our unique non-interventionist point of view. We also focus on severely underreported conflicts such as the U.S. drone war in Somalia. You know, a lot of times when I talk about drone strikes in Somalia, there's been times where there was no write-ups of it in any English language media on the Internet that I could find. And, and I was, unfortunately, I just have to base it on these AFRICOM press releases. And we know that we, we can't trust them to tell the truth, but we still have to make people aware that the U.S. is, you know, drone striking Somalia. Um, so I think that's an example of the value you get from antiwar.com reporting things that nobody else is. And our work would not be possible without, you know, our readers pitching in to help keep us going. So please consider helping us out here, helping us secure these funds. And we're a nonprofit, so everything's tax deductible. And if you donate today, every dollar will be matched. So go to antiwar.com slash donate. All right, where were we here? The next one, NATO chief calls for a significant increase in military aid for Ukraine. Again, a common pattern here. This is Jen Stoltenberg, the NATO secretary general. This was also in Davos uh, in an interview with Reuters on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum. He said, quote, this is a pivotal moment in the war and the need for a significant increase in support for Ukraine, end quote. And now he repeated this thing he's been saying lately is that, uh, you know, more weapons uh, is, is the fastest way to peace. More weapons equal, equals peace. He said, quote, if we want a negotiated peaceful solution tomorrow, we need to provide more weapons today, end quote. Um, so it's always important to point out that earlier in the war, there was a viable it, it looks like there was some real peace talks going on between Russia and Ukraine. They met in person. There was a deal in the works. Boris Johnson went over to Kiev and told Zelensky not to negotiate. And that's a fact. We know that. Uh, Boris Johnson's office said that. And then Ukrainian media reported, Ukrainska Pravda, Ukrainian newspaper, that Johnson's visit was a factor in the negotiations, uh, you know, failing. Um, so... I'm sure Boris Johnson didn't, you know, go there on his own volition. I'm sure he had the backing of the U.S. and NATO when he was there. Um, so this idea that more weapons equals peace is just nonsense, obviously. It's as Orwellian as it sounds. Um, and right now, 
Uh, you know, Ukraine is making unrealistic demands, uh, saying that war tribunals for Russia need to happen before talks could even happen and they need to pull out. And then you have Russia saying, oh, any peace deal must involve, you know, the territories that we have captured being annexed. So that's completely unacceptable for Ukraine. So, you know, as things stand, uh, they're just going to keep fighting as the U.S. and NATO keep flooding weapons into the country and fueling the conflict. The only chance peace talks would happen is if if if, you know, the U.S. and NATO push Ukraine to talk. And that's not happening, of course. Um and then he, he gets into the tanks. So I'll save that for this next article here. Berlin will allow the export of their Leopard 2 tanks only if the U.S. sends its tanks. So German Chancellor Olaf Scholz will only allow the export of German-made Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine if the U.S. sends its own tanks. Reuters reported on Wednesday, citing a German government source. So Poland and Finland have both said that they're ready to send some of their Leopard tanks to Ukraine, but the export needs Berlin's approval. So Germany's vice chancellor recently said that Berlin would not get in the way of the deliveries, but Schultz appears to still be against the idea. The U.S. The US recently pledged to send Ukraine Bradley fighting vehicles and is expected to announce a package of striker fighting vehicles this weekend but it has no plans to send the M1 Abrams, which is the U.S.'s main battle tank, or any other you know, heavy tanks. Um, and Colin Cal, he's the U.S. Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. He said on Wednesday that, uh, that he was asked about the tanks, and he said, quote, I just don't think we're there yet. The Abrams tank is a very complicated piece of equipment. It's expensive. It's hard to train on. It has a jet engine, end quote. So it sounds like the U.S. isn't going to send them. But, I mean, there's so much pressure on Schultz to just sign off on, on sending these tanks. You know, I would honest, I would be surprised if... I don't expect Germany to send their own, but I would be surprised if he blocks, you know, Poland and Finland and other countries from doing it. But we'll see. I mean, the U.S. is probably going to try to push them to do it. And like I said, there's a ton of meetings happening this week. So we'll see what happens. Okay, the next article here, Turkey's foreign minister says that the U.S. should approve this F-16 deal. Uh, so Turkey's foreign minister met with Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Washington on Wednesday, and he said that the U.S. should approve a $20 billion F-16 sale to Turkey, despite objections from some members of Congress. Um, so according to the Turkish broadcaster TRT World, he also told Blinken to convey to Congress that the F-16 deal should not be linked to Sweden and Finland's NATO bids, uh, which Turkey, of course, has yet to approve. So this deal, it's a pretty big deal. It'd be for 40 F-16 fighter jets and 79 kits to upgrade Turkey's existing fleet. It has the support of the Biden administration, but after the potential deal was first reported, Senator Bob Menendez... This, the he's a Democrat from New Jersey, the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He came out strongly against the sale. Um, so Menendez's position so far, the administration has not notified Congress about the sale, um, which that begins a period when Congress could block it. But, you know, they still need, you know, the votes to block it. Uh, but Menendez is pretty influential when it comes to Democrats, you know, in foreign policy. Uh so it suggests that they might try to block it, although they might be looking to use it as leverage to get Turkey to sign off on Sweden and Finland joining NATO 
U.S. officials have said that's kind of one one purpose for this deal is to get them to just sign off on it. But again, Turkey, you know, Erdogan, uh, one of his advisors, basically said they're not going to bring it to the parliament before the upcoming presidential election, which was originally scheduled for June, but might be happening in May. So it's still a long ways off. Um, and the U.S. and Turkey, they're also at odds over Ankara's steps toward rapprochement with the Syrian government. Uh, no deals have been signed so far, but Russia is working on setting up a meeting between Syria and Turkey's foreign ministers after their defense ministers met for the first time since 2011. And in light of those talks, the U.S. said that it's against any countries normalizing with the Assad government. So the U.S. and Turkey, they put out a joint statement after Blinken met with the Turkish foreign minister, and they it just said, you know, kind of the topics they covered, including Sweden and Finland's NATO bids, the F-16 deal, and Syria, but it didn't sound like any concrete results came from these talks or any agreements were really made. Um, so we'll see how all this stuff with Turkey plays out. All right, the next article here, U.S. and China vow to increase communication to avoid conflict. So Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, she met with China's top economic official, Vice Premier uh, Li He, in Switzerland on Wednesday as Washington and Beijing continue to maintain high-level contacts. So in a readout of the meeting, the Treasury Department said that both sides agreed for the functioning of the global economy to further enhance communication. Ahead of the meeting, Yellen said that communication was important so the U.S. and China could show the world that they could prevent competition from becoming anything near a conflict. Um, so the U.S., this has been uh, something the U.S. and China have been pushing since Biden met with Xi back in November, you know, is to talk, is to keep high-level meetings going on, and it's good. I mean, I'm happy that to see them talking, um, but unfortunately, it doesn't seem like the U.S. is really interested in resolving any issues with China. They keep framing these talks as a managing of competition as opposed to, you know, trying to work things out. Um, and the Treasury Department said that Yellen had a frank exchange with Liu and raised areas of concern. And China's Ministry of Commerce said that uh, he raised China's concerns over U.S. economic trade and technology policies toward China, referring to strict sanctions and export controls the U.S. recently imposed on China's semiconductor industry. Those are pretty major sanctions. And the U.S. has also been pushing its allies uh, and other countries to impose the same restrictions, including Japan and the Netherlands. Um, I believe those are the two big ones when it comes to the semiconductor stuff. Uh, and the U.S. has continued to increase support for Taiwan, as I'm always uh, going on about, <laughs> despite Xi warning Biden in November that the issue is the first red line that must not be crossed. China has responded to the growing ties between Washington and Taipei by stepping up military activity in the region. Um, all right. Oh, so the last one here. So some more drama in Israel with their new government. Uh, Israel's high court disqualifies Interior Minister Derry from holding office. So Aryeh Derry, I might be saying his name wrong, uh, Israel's Interior and Health Minister has been disqualified from holding his office uh, by the high court in a bombshell judgment that has implications for the future 
of Benjamin Netanyahu's government and the judiciary itself. Derry is one of Netanyahu's most experienced allies and the head of the ultra-Orthodox Shaz party. Ahead of the judgment, his Shaz ally, Yaakov Margi, who is the welfare minister, told an Israeli radio station, if he's disqualified, then there will be no government. So other people from this party are were threatening that they would resign if, if he couldn't serve, and that would mean they would have to form a new government and who knows if, if that could happen really um so Derry was convicted of a tax crimes in 2022 and submitted his resignation from the israeli parliament he struck a plea bargain with the courts in which he said that he would quit parliament and political life only to return to it nine months later and take the position of interior and health ministry the israeli high court was deliberating whether his appointment contravenes his plea bargain so this is a pretty big decision that they made. Uh, I haven't seen a response yet from Netanyahu, but uh, we'll see how this shakes out. And Israel has been known to have, uh, you know, a lot of elections, uh, you know, in a short amount of period of time. I forget when Netanyahu was last prime minister, took a few elections uh, for uh, him to get for a different government to form. Uh, I want to say like three or four. Um but anyway, that's it for the news. Go check out our viewpoints. We have a lot of great ones, as always. One from Ted Snyder, War in Ukraine, When International Laws Collide. One from Judge Knapp, The FBI and Personal Liberty. One from Caitlin Johnstone, CNN recruits Washington's worst warmonger the instant he leaves Congress. And that is Adam Kinzinger, who I would agree is one of the worst. He was calling for the no-fly zone. Uh you know, imposed by the U.S. and NATO over Ukraine earlier in the war, basically calling for World War III and potentially nuclear war. So, yeah, he's definitely one of the worst. And he landed a job. It was pretty much right after he left Congress. He he announced he was going to work for CNN. Uh, the Taiwanese Expedition by Jude Russo. That's over at the American Conservative. And then our spotlight is from Aaron Mate. NATO's mission leaves Ukraine destroyed. And he's referring to the comments from Reznikov, the Ukrainian defense minister who said, you know, they're shedding blood for a NATO mission. Uh, it's at his Substack, and it's just a good summary of all the death and destruction that, you know, Ukraine is facing and the high casualties. Um, so anyway, uh, that's it. That's everything today. Again, go support us. Antiwar.com slash donate. You know, we really appreciate all the support. Um, and you could also help us out by, sharing this show, sharing our articles, telling people to read antiwar.com, telling people to watch the show, listen to the show, um, you know, things like that. We also really appreciate. Uh, but that's it for me for today. I will be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening. <laughs>